Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Welcome to this episode on holy orders. So a brief introduction to the two sacraments that we're going to be looking at over the next two episodes. The last five sacraments we looked at were all about like our own personal holiness, right? So baptism, communion, confession, confirmation, and the anointing of the sick. They're all about my personal growth in sanctity, right? Preparing me for heaven. Now, these last two sacraments are the sacraments at the service of others. So point 1534 of the Catechism says, Holy orders and matrimony are directed towards the salvation of others. If they contribute as well to personal salvation, it is through service to others that they do so. And I absolutely love that quote. It is so beautiful because it reminds us that this is our vocation, right? As Christians, we are called to two things, personal holiness and apostolate. We're not like we don't just go hide in our bedrooms and ignore the rest of the world and focus on being holy. There would be something seriously wrong if we did that. Like even if you were a hermit living in a cave, you still are called to serve others through your prayers and through your mortification. Right. And if you didn't do that, there would be something really wrong there. So that's what these two sacraments are, are all about. They're about us serving others through our Christian vocation. So today we'll be looking at holy orders, and then in the next episode, we'll be looking at marriage. Now, holy orders is the sacrament by which men receive the power and the grace to perform the duties of bishop, priest, or deacon. Okay, so this, in other words, is the sacrament of the priesthood. Now, what is the priesthood? (laughs) And that might seem like a really obvious question, but actually it's an incredibly important one. It is so important that we get this right, because so often we have these discussions about issues like, you know, why can't women be priests or why can't the church change its teachings on some point of dogma? Or, you know, I'm so scandalized because father so-and-so did something wrong. And at the heart of all of these kind of controversies and issues and heated discussions is very often a fundamental misunderstanding of what the priesthood is. So, According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, the main job of a priest is to hold public worship, especially to offer sacrifice. And that's like a generic definition of a priest. So we can see this across most religions. That's the function of a priest. So in the Jewish religion, we see this. In the Old Testament, you have the Levites, the men of the tribe of Levi, and they were the priests. So their job was to offer incense and burnt offerings twice a day. And then once a week, they would prepare the bread of the presence and place it before the Ark of the Covenant. So in other words, it was their job to carry out tasks to do with public worship, particularly around sacrifice. Now, of course, the Old Testament priests also had other tasks, which included judging and teaching the people. So it was their job to preserve and to explain the law. But their main job was to offer worship and sacrifice. 
Now, why did the priests of the Old Testament need to offer sacrifice? Well, to make up for sin. So, you know, when you've accrued a debt, you pay it back by offering something of value to the person you're in debt to. That's why we offer sacrifice. Now, of course, the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament were kind of symbolic, right? Like they couldn't ultimately achieve anything because it's like if you have an infinite debt and you're trying to pay it back with $5 notes, right? The only way to pay back an infinite debt is with an offering of infinite value. And the only thing that exists and is of infinite value is, of course, God himself. So that is why Christ became a man and sacrificed himself on the cross. Okay, now at this point, you're probably thinking, okay, Caitlin, we know this one. Christ became a sacrifice. When are you going to start talking about the priesthood? Well, I actually am already talking about the priesthood. Let's think about it. In the Old Testament, you have the sacrifice. Okay, so for instance, the sacrificial lamb. And then you also have the priest who offers the sacrifice. So those are two different things, the priest and the sacrifice. But what do we see in the New Testament? In John 10, 18, Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Now, it is so important that Christ has said that, because if someone else had taken Jesus' life and offered it to God, then Jesus wouldn't be the priest, okay? That person would be the priest. But Jesus willingly lays down his own life, and that makes him the priest, as well as the sacrifice. And in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 7, it tells us that because Christ continues forever, that means that his priesthood also endures forever. In other words, Christ is the one definitive ultimate priest who offers the one definitive ultimate sacrifice. So here we see the fulfillment of everything that was prefigured in the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. Okay, so if this is true, if Christ is the one priest and there's one sacrifice, then surely that means that we no longer need other human priests to offer sacrifice, like the priesthood is done. Well, okay, yes and no. In one sense, yes, there is only one priest, and that is Christ. But let's not forget that as baptized Christians, we are all part of the one mystical body of Christ. And what that means is that we all share in Christ's mission, including his priestly mission. So point 1547 of the Catechism says every Christian participates in what we call the common priesthood of the faithful. So what that means is that we are all called to offer worship and sacrifice to God in union with Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And when we talk about offering sacrifices, we don't mean that we all have to like slaughter a lamb. Okay, St. Paul in Romans 12.1 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Pope Benedict XVI says, What is this offering which we are called to make, if not to direct our every thought, word and action to the truth of the gospel and to harness all our energies in the service of God's kingdom? So just like Christ, 
Every single one of us is called to offer our whole selves, everything that we do and think and feel, as an act of worship and sacrifice to God. And of course, the context in which we bring that offering to God is in the Holy Mass. That's where we bring ourselves as a sacrifice and unite it to Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. Now, one thing that we have probably all experienced before is that when a whole group of people is offering a gift to someone, you generally have one person who stands at the head of the group and actually presents the gift to that person. Okay, And the same thing is true of the Mass. In the Mass, we need one person to stand there on behalf of all of us and offer the sacrifice on our behalf. And of course, that one person is... Christ, not the priest, (laughs) Jesus. Christ is the head of the body. He offers the sacrifice on our behalf. But because Christ has ascended into heaven, he needs someone on earth to represent him. And that is the job of the ministerial priest. Point 1545 of the Catechism says that the one priesthood of Christ is made present through the ministerial priesthood. Okay, so the job of the priest is to represent Christ in the sacrifice of the Mass. And Jesus gave this job himself to the first priests, right? His apostles. We see this in the Gospels at the Last Supper. He said to them, Do this in memory of me. Now, two things that are hopefully becoming clear through this kind of discussion. The first is that the priestly vocation is ultimately about the mass. Okay, it's ultimately about sacrifice and worship. And secondly, that the priesthood is about service. The ministerial priest is precisely that. He is a minister. He is there to act as a channel of God's grace and to serve the whole church. So point 1547 of the Catechism says that the ministerial priesthood is at the service of the common priesthood. So priests are there to help us worship God, to help us all get to heaven. And the main way that they do that is through the sacraments and especially the Eucharist and confession. But just like the priests of the Old Testament, they also have other tasks, including teaching and pastoral governance. Okay, teaching and pastoral governance. So priests and bishops have a particular responsibility to pass on the gospel. Now, do priests get to just make up their own stuff? Do they get to decide what we all believe? No, definitely not. Pope Benedict XVI, in a homily on the priesthood, says, The priest does not invent, does not create or proclaim his own ideas. The teaching he announces is not his own, but Christ's. Now, of course, priests and bishops do have to consider, okay, how do we explain and apply the teachings of the gospel in different contexts? But that's like putting a new frame on a painting, right? It's a new way of presenting or seeing something that remains unchanging. So, okay, imagine if your family owned a priceless painting, like a painting by one of the Dutch masters, and it's been handed down over the generations through your family line, and then you finally inherit the painting. Imagine if you decided that, you know, well, it's my painting now, so I can do whatever I want with it. So that means that I have every right to take out my acrylics and my paintbrush and just paint a few little extra trees in the foreground. Okay, 
Just because you happen to be the custodian of the painting right now, that does not mean that you have an absolute right to do what you like with it. And it is exactly the same with the teaching office of priests and bishops. They are there to pass on what they have received. Okay, and then governance. Priests and bishops have the right and responsibility to govern. So it's like we're all in a dragon boat and we all have the job of rowing it and making sure it gets to where it needs to go. And then the priests and the bishops, they have a particular role in that. So they're like the guy with his hands on the rudder, making sure that the boat stays on course. And in fact, a dragon boat is a really great analogy for this, because in a dragon boat, the person who's steering actually stands right up the back of the boat. So he's not the one, you know, up the front pulling it forward. He's up the back sort of serving, just making sure that the boat stays on course. So Pope Benedict XVI says, Jesus' way of governing was not through dominion, but in the humble and loving service of the washing of the feet. And the kingship of Christ reaches its highest point in the wood of the cross. So yes, priests and especially bishops are called to make decisions about the church. But those decisions should always be at the service of the spiritual needs of the whole church. The role of governance is not about power or being in charge or like being the boss. Okay. Now, of course, there are absolutely times when, you know, bishops have abused their role and have used it in order to, to, you know, have power over other people. And that makes sense, right? Because we're human beings and we sin all the time. Okay. But that does not mean that there is something wrong with the priesthood or that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like if you came across someone on the side of the road and they've been beaten up and you just thought, oh, well, I mean, he's in pretty bad shape, so I guess we might as well take his wallet as well. (laughs) No, if someone is injured, you nurse them back to health. So yes, there have been abuses of power in the church, but the solution to that isn't to like, you know, get rid of the priesthood or something. It's to nurse it back to health. So understanding that the priesthood is not about power, that it's about service, and that the predominant function of the priesthood is to offer worship, especially through the mass. All of this is super important foundational knowledge that we need to have when it comes to addressing issues such as the ordination of women. So, The Catechism in point 1577 says that the ordination of women is not possible. Okay, now we don't have time to kind of exhaustively go into this issue in this episode, but it is something that I wanted to briefly address. If this is an issue that causes you, you know, frustration or even pain, I would recommend a couple of things. First of all, I would recommend reading a book called The Catholic Priesthood and Women by Sister Sarah Butler. So she is a nun and also a professor of dogmatic theology in New York. She also has a couple of talks on YouTube that are well worth watching. I would recommend checking out her stuff. Um, Also, I recommend reading the letter to women that Pope John Paul II wrote because it is just such a beautiful expression of the church's love and reverence for the, the dignity and equality of women. Okay, but just briefly, let's look at why the Catholic Church doesn't ordain women. The priesthood is a calling from God. Okay, it's not a career choice that I make. So point 1578 of the Catechism says, No one has a right to receive the sacrament of holy orders. He is called to it by God. 
And this is something that Sister Sarah Butler talks about. She says, who would dare say those words, this is my body and I absolve you of your sins in the name of Christ unless they have been authorized by Christ himself? That's a fantastic point. Like in mass and in confession, the priest implicitly says, I have the authority to stand here in the place of Christ and speak his words. That's a huge thing to say. And if we're going to say it, we want to be pretty sure that God has actually called us to say those words. Now, how do we know that Jesus didn't call women to say those words? Well, because he didn't. (laughs) And that's something that has been pointed out ever since the early church fathers. Jesus didn't call any women to the priesthood. And he could have. Like sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, social conventions of the time prevented Jesus from ordaining women. No. First of all, Jesus is literally God. Okay, he can do whatever he wants. Secondly, at no point in the Gospels do we see that Jesus has any particular regard for the social conventions of his time. Like you look at him talking to the woman at the well and his apostles are totally scandalized by that or eating with tax collectors and sinners i mean he ordained a former tax collector to the priesthood they were the greatest social outcasts in the jewish world and if jesus had been worried about scandal or about people disapproving or not wanting to follow him he probably wouldn't have told everyone to eat his flesh I mean, of all of the things that's going to act as a stumbling block for the early church, that would be the big one, not women priests. And by the way, the concept of priestesses at the time was totally a thing. I mean, not in the Jewish faith, but in other religions that were around, there were priestesses. It's not like it was completely unheard of. So the fact that Jesus didn't ordain women seems deliberate. Okay, He didn't just cave to social pressure. And actually, and this is something that many early church fathers point out, there were plenty of women who were disciples, right, who followed Jesus around, like Mary of Magdala. He could so easily have ordained her, but he chose not to. Okay, so the priesthood is a calling from God. Jesus could have called women to the priesthood, but he didn't. And if Christ hasn't called women, then the church does not have the authority to call women. So in the year 1994, Pope John Paul II made the following declaration. He said, I declare that the church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women. So he's not saying, you know, we have decided not to ordain women or I refuse to ordain women. He's literally saying we cannot. Like, it's not even on the table. It is not a question that we get to discuss. We just simply don't have the authority. Now, why is it that Jesus didn't call women to the priesthood? Well, this is actually one of those areas where the church has no official teaching on why women can't be priests. And that's because... Christ didn't tell us why. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no explanations available to us. There are. There are many. But all that means is that there's no one explanation that we have to accept as Catholics. So some people like Christopher West, for instance, he comes at it from the angle of the theology of the body. And he talks about, you know, the church as the bride and the Christ as the bridegroom. I won't go into all of that here because it would take like a bajillion years and I wouldn't do it justice. But I'll just link some of his stuff in the show notes if that's something that you find helpful. But the explanation that I found most compelling is actually quite a simple one. And it's one that I've heard Jason Evert use. Basically, he says, and this I'm paraphrasing, but essentially what he says is that when it comes to the sacraments, matter matters, right? Like the physical signs that we use matter because they are tangible signs of a heavenly reality. They're not just arbitrary. So the fact that the priest is a man reminds us that he represents the man Christ. 
And just like how we can't swap out the bread and wine for something else in the Eucharist, we can't swap out a man for a woman in the Mass or in confession. Those external signs matter. By the way, none of this is to say that there is no option for women to have more of a role in decision-making in the church. And this is something that has become really clear over the last few years. Pope Francis and also Pope John Paul too have done a lot for for the role of women in the church. So Pope Francis has appointed women to really high-ranking roles, administrative roles in the Vatican and in the Roman Curia. So there's absolutely room for women to perform more of a role in the church. It's just that the priesthood isn't the pathway for them to do that through. So only men can be ordained. Now, while that's true, that doesn't mean that just any man could be ordained a priest. First of all, in the Roman rite, priests are almost always celibate. Okay, so they are unmarried men. Now, there are some instances where, for instance, like a a married high Anglican priest might convert and he might be allowed to continue his work as a priest in the Catholic Church. But most of the time, priests are celibate. Now, this is not actually a doctrine of the church. So it's something that in theory could change, but it's pretty unlikely that it would, mostly because the vocation to the priesthood is seen as a vocation of total self-giving. But having said that, in Eastern Catholic churches, married men can be ordained priests. They just can't be ordained bishops. And this is totally seen as legitimate by the church. That's completely fine. It's just two different kind of traditions. So that's one of the requirements, at least in the Roman rite, for any man who wants to become a priest. He has to be single. But as well as this, he also has to be able on at least a kind of a fundamental level to represent Christ to others. So what does that mean? Okay, in The Faith Explained, it talks about how in order to be a priest, it's necessary that the man be in the state of grace and that he be of exceptionally good character. He needs to have completed four years of high school, four years of college and four years of theology. So in other words, you have to be able to demonstrate a certain level of like knowledge and education and quality of character in order to be a priest. As we've already said, you need to represent Christ to the world. So if you're habitually committing mortal sins, you need to overcome that before you enter the seminary. Now, that isn't to say that you have to be a saint in order to enter the seminary. It also, unfortunately, doesn't mean that all priests are necessarily super holy. I mean, they should be trying to be, but they aren't necessarily. So point 1550 of the Catechism says the presence of Christ in the minister is not to be understood as if the latter were preserved from all human weakness, the spirit of domination, error, even sin. So in other words, priests are human beings, just like everyone else. And this is a really important one to remember, because when we forget this, we can fall into what we call clericalism. So this is when we treat the priest as though he were actually Christ rather than a representative of Christ. We confuse his person with his role, his vocation. Now, clericalism is really damaging because it can lead us to be completely scandalized when we see a priest do something wrong. You know, we realize that the priest isn't perfect because we're expecting him to be Christ, but he's not Christ. He's not perfect. He's a sinner who is struggling just like us. So we shouldn't get scandalized if we see or hear of a priest doing something wrong. We should pray for him a lot, but stay calm. (laughs) And in fact, point 1550 of the Catechism tells us that even if a priest has committed a mortal sin and he's no longer in the state of grace, 
he can still validly celebrate the sacraments. So his capacity to consecrate the Eucharist and forgive sins does not depend on his level of personal sanctity. And that's because he's a channel of the grace of God. He's not the source of that grace. Now, while we should never treat the priest like he's like a superior being or totally perfect, we also shouldn't go like to the other end of the spectrum and be a bit too casual about the priesthood. So think of it like this. Imagine if I got an audience with the Queen of England, right? And she walked into the room and I barreled up to her and gave her a big slap on the back and was like, Lizzie, how you doing, mate? High five. What's up? Right. I was like being super casual and matey with her. I would understandably be escorted from the room if that happened. Not because Queen Elizabeth is in and of herself the most dignified and important person in the world, but because her role, her job is one of great dignity and importance. She has a really important job and I need to acknowledge that in the way that I behave around her. And this is true times a billion for priests. Priests are the only people in the world who get to consecrate the Eucharist. They literally hold God in their hands. Okay, they have the authority to forgive sins on Christ's behalf. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we get around being like, oh, father, father, you know, whatever you say, I'm not going to make eye contact with you because you're so important. No, don't do that. But at the same time, you know, we have to be careful. Like, maybe don't make fun of priests or don't gossip about the priest. Like if, if the parish priest does something that is upsetting to you, don't gossip about it. Have a chat to him about it <laughs> or to the bishop if you need to. But we have to sort of have a level of respect and even reverence for the priestly vocation. And we can do that without being kind of weird and clerical. Okay, so before we wrap up, a few practical points about holy orders and how this sacrament works. So, there are three degrees of ordination, the diaconate, presbyteriate, and episcopate. So deacons, priests, and bishops. Now, all of these three roles have been around since the very beginnings of the church. So St. Ignatius of Antioch in the year 96 AD, this is the first century AD, writes about all three of these roles and says, without them, one cannot speak of the church. So deacons, priests, and bishops are absolutely necessary to the structure of the church. Okay, so what is a deacon? Well, the job of a deacon is to help and to serve priests and bishops. So deacons are not priests, okay? They're not ordained into the ministerial priesthood. So what that means is that they can't consecrate the Eucharist, and they also can't forgive sins in confession, but they can do other stuff. So point 1570 of the catechism says that deacons assist in the distribution of Holy Communion, in assisting at and blessing marriages, in the proclamation of the gospel and preaching, in presiding over funerals, and in dedicating themselves to the various ministries of charity. And, you know, we said before that priests need to be unmarried, that priests are celibate in the Roman rite. Well, deacons don't have to be celibate. So this is a role that married men can, can fill, the job of a deacon. Okay, and then priests. So priests are able, they're obviously ordained into the ministerial priesthood, and they are able to act in the person of Christ to consecrate the Eucharist and forgive sins in confession. And their job is to assist the bishop and to build up and to sanctify the church. 
And then the fullness of priestly ordination occurs in the bishop. Now, bishops have the power to teach and govern and to carry out the sacraments of confirmation and holy orders. So only the bishop can ordain priests and other bishops. Now, the episcopate, right, the bishops, that's the highest level of ordination, okay? It doesn't get any higher than that. So when we think about, you know, archbishops, cardinals, and even the pope, they are all bishops. So this is from the the faith explained. It says, the pope does not have any more spiritual power than any other bishop. He does have more authority, more extensive jurisdiction than any other bishop. He's able to make decisions like, you know, which priests become bishops. and, And he also obviously has that gift of infallibility. But that essential priestly power is no greater than it was on the day when he was first consecrated a bishop. Now, each of these three levels of ordination, so deacon, priest, and bishop, they are all conferred through the sacrament of holy orders. How does the actual sacrament of holy orders look? And this is where we get to matter and form. So the matter of this sacrament, the stuff, is the bishop's imposition of hands on the head of the ordinand. Okay, so the bishop lays his hands on the head of the man being ordained. And then the form is a consecratory prayer in which the bishop invokes the Holy Spirit and the gifts proper to the ministry to which the candidate is being ordained. So for deacon, priest and bishop, each ordination includes a different prayer. So we won't go through all of them here, but you can find them if you want to in a papal encyclical called Sacramentum Ordinis. And I'll include that in the show notes. Now, the sacrament of holy orders at every level, so deacon, priest and bishop, confers a indelible spiritual character on the ordinand. So it's like in baptism and confirmation, you are marked forever. In other words, once a priest, always a priest. So point 1583 of the catechism says that someone validly ordained can, for a just reason, be discharged from his obligations or can be forbidden to exercise them, but he cannot become a layman again because the character imprinted by ordination is forever. Okay, so even if a priest is stripped of his priestly faculties, like he doesn't have the right to perform the sacraments anymore, he still remains a priest forever. Okay, Now, that's all we've got time for, um, for holy orders. I know that there is a lot in there and I feel like we've kind of just skimmed over so many things. There are so many aspects to this sacrament and so many things that we could go deeper into and talk about more. And hopefully once we've finished the whole catechism, we'll be able to actually go back to some of these topics where, you know, there are still things that, that I haven't, I feel like I haven't been able to go into deeply enough and we can kind of like address them later. But in the meantime, this is a kind of overview of the priesthood and holy orders. Next episode, we're going to talk about marriage. <laughs> I cannot wait for that one. I will see you in two weeks. Have a fantastic fortnight. I'll talk to you later. Bye.